So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to a brand spanking new episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Hey, I'm Nate Larkin, here with my good friend, David Hampton. Gosh, we've been friends for so long. I'm so just (laughs) pleased that, you know, in all the changes that we've seen over the many years that we've been together, this constant that we still are connected, kind of growing together, changing together, getting all together. Hopefully getting a little wiser together. I can only hope. (laughs) Yeah, that would be a, that'd be a great thing to believe, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, Hopefully. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, that is the, we've, of course, we've all heard it. That's the one constant is like in life is that, is that things are constantly changing. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I have an ambivalent relationship with change. Yeah, I, I'm always surprised when it happens yeah. too. And it's, <laughs> there's some mythology in my head that says when I get to this whatever comfortable spot, life is just going to scoot right on at that pace yeah, and right. that level yeah. forever, and it doesn't. And God, yeah, that's yeah. disconcerting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I do have. So there's this part of my brain, this kind of. That, that still is uncomfortable with uh, with life's, well, discomforts. That's pretty simple. Yeah. Life's yeah. inconveniences, life's challenges. Uh, I don't like to sit in distress. And so there is always a part of me that wants to change what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, either wants to retreat to a mythical past that I have somehow idealized. Mm-hmm. Or somehow grab the controls and create a future uh, that I think will be superior to uh, the present that I'm in. Mm-hmm. Or if not to do that, then just to escape, uh, to dissociate, to find some way to medicate with a mind altering, mood altering substance or activity mm-hmm. uh, rather than sit in the reality of the present. Yeah. And then here's this crazy thing. I do when I finally get healthy enough to I do I sit in the present and I and I get to that magical beautiful place of acceptance and I say you know <laughs> life is not perfect but life is good yeah and you know and I do a gratitude list and I say you know what this is this is a this is a good place yeah. Now I want it, now I want it to stay just like this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, and it won't. Right. It won't. Yeah. Something will change. 
And any effort I make to try to wrestle reality into conformity with my view of what it should be uh, only leads uh, to disaster. Yeah. Yeah. It, gosh, I like that wrestle reality into conformity. <laughs> you know, uh, that is a really great way to put it because uh, that's, you know, that's the, that's the thing. Our reality, um, gosh, very often, I, you know, we, we're not even in touch with the reality that we're uh, right, 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 right. scooting by in complacency until it's right, abruptly right. altered. You know, sure, sure. Um, yeah, so I have this judgmental mind, right? Which, which is, which always wants to pass judgment uh, uh, to render a verdict mm-hmm. on whatever's happening right now. Mm-hmm. To say either this is good or this is bad. Right. I'm either in a good place or I'm in a bad place. Mm-hmm. If I'm in a good place, I have to stay here somehow. If it's a bad place, I've got to move. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, in my healthier moments, I can actually say this is a place. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. Just this plain is a and place. Simple. Yeah. That's right. And uh, it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. There, there are parts of it that I do not like. Perhaps there are parts of it that I can change by taking action. Yeah. Uh, right? So I can, I can influence the course of the future, but I cannot control the future. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, to, 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 uh, <laughs> to act while surrendering the outcome. That's one of the central skills of recovery. Right. Right, right. Not to retreat into passivity, to continue to act, but to but to do the right thing and surrender the outcome. Yeah, <laughs> doing the right thing without expectation. Yeah, you know exactly is, is a big yeah. thing. And I was telling somebody recently, um, it feels like I think when I when I talk to people every day, there's always conflict. You know, life has mm-hmm. been disruptive. Something's not working. Sure. You know. Um, but I, what I'm perceiving is more and more, I, I see an expectation or a construct that we have a persona we've created or an ideal Mm -hmm. life in our head that we've, that we have. And the, the conflict is coming when reality doesn't match my, uh, my constructed idea Mm -hmm. of what should be or what is, you know? Yeah. Um, I can pretend that people get along better than they do. As long as I'm not around them, I can pretend yeah. that, you know, <laughs> uh, that the, you know, family stuff is less, uh, less serious as long as I keep a distance from it, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. But, but man, the conflict comes when we, when we are confronted with the fact that our reality is different than that thing that we carry around in our head. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, all of this is becoming particularly relevant to me because I am, you know, kind of in a season of accelerated change. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Here I am. I'm adjusting to a, a new normal, a different reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, life once again in a small southern town, a, a very small southern town. Yeah. Uh, you know, far away from my accustomed locus of activity, uh, the friends with whom I've associated for more than 20 years. Yeah. Uh, uh, 
And there are beautiful parts about this new situation and this new life mm-hmm. that once again are not perfect, but they are good. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also still, you know, we've only been in the new place now for less than two weeks, David, and it's still so unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. And I've not yet settled into, uh, you know, uh, an automatic routine. I'm having to think my way through the day. It's taking a lot more effort. Yeah. Uh, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and I do have to tell you that the urge to escape, uh, you know, to get some relief just by dissociation, mm-hmm. is certainly elevated right now. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's you know that's the thing. Yeah, the, the brain is kind of a two-edged sword, you know, because in as much as it's great in motivating us and warning us and doing all these things, it also thinks that whenever it has normalized something um, that its job is to get us to go back to it, you know? So whether that's, you know, I mean, that's partly how addiction, you know, rides onto the scene because the brain normalizes a substance or a behavior, but, um, but, but when we're disrupting what the brain believes to be normal, Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of anxiety and, and a pull you know, yes. to say, well, uh, when are we going back to that thing we know better? <laughs> right. That thing that does not require a lot of effort. Right. right. The brain is wired for the conservation of energy, for the optimization of efficiency. Right. And so it is forever automating routines. Yeah. Thinking it's going to make life easier for us. Yeah. Uh, right. And it takes a lot of effort now to think our way to a new routine. Yeah. And to carry it out long enough that the brain will substitute one automated sequence for another one. Right. Right. Yeah. And I yeah. tell people all the time, you are going to have to have a in, an intentional, intellectual, cognitive conversation with yourself and the mm-hmm. part of yourself that is believing that its job is to take you back to somewhere you don't want to go. Yeah, you know, yeah. and you're going to have to have a list of really good reasons to tell that part of yourself, uh-huh. uh, you know, because um, the brain will just, you know, we will just go back to the mindless routine of self-preservation and believing that um, that that behavior, whatever it is, is serving us in some way, uh, yeah, even yeah. when it's destructive. And, and and this is where the company of other people who, who are committed to the same kind of growth we're committed to, the people who are on the same path. I like mm-hmm. to say other idiots walking in the same direction. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right? Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Where we can, you know, remind each other yeah. of what we're doing and why we're doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and where we can gather and gain some support for each other along the way. It's so crucial. Yeah. Because no matter how determined I am to strike out in this new direction, and no matter how strong you know, I am at the outset, there probably is going to become a time, come a time when I'm just too tired, Mm -hmm. too angry, too Mm -hmm. resentful, Mm -hmm. too afraid, Mm -hmm. too lonely, Mm -hmm. too hungry, Mm -hmm. (laughs) too horny, too (laughs) pissed off something, right? Yeah. 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 Uh Yeah. 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 And at that point, at that point, it's going to be my friends who are going to help to save me. 
Right. And it's those social connections that are so crucial. Yeah, absolutely. All absolutely. Right. I, I'm, I'm, I'm hard at work uh, maintaining my existing network. Mm-hmm. I had a long talk this morning with a guy who, you know, he and I used to meet every Thursday morning at seven o'clock at the Frothy Monkey right there in downtown Franklin and go for mm-hmm. a one hour walk. We did it for uh, years and years and years and years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we walked today, but he's in, he's in fricking Mount Juliet or something. And I'm down here in East nowhere, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but we're on, but we're on the phone. Yeah. We had, a, we had a great talk for an hour. Yeah. And, and I felt a little more stable, a little more sane. And I'm sure he did too by the time we were done. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, you found a great guest for us today. I did. Um, yeah. Actually, this great guest found us. Okay. All right. <laughs> Another okay. one that found okay. us. But yeah, I'll take credit. She is okay. uh, a great uh, a great guest, an author and a therapist and a recovery story of her own. And uh, I know everybody's going to enjoy uh, the, the tools that she's going to bring to us today. So. All right. I'm glad you were able to record the conversation with her. Sorry that I wasn't able to be there, but I can be a beneficiary along with our listeners. Yeah. We're all going to join the conversation now when we return on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And today... I am uh, flying solo. Uh, our cohort and co-host, Nate Larkin, uh, that you guys all know and love, uh, has finally gotten to close on this house that's been the big, mysterious, when is the closing date? Well, it turned out to be this morning, last minute. So I'm here with our guest today, uh, looking forward to a really great conversation that uh, we'll just have together. And uh, our guest is... Karen Hardwick, and Karen is a therapist author. She's the author of The Connected Leader, Seven Strategies to Empower Yourself and Inspire Others. And um, Karen is an author and a therapist, as I said, but she's also a uh, an, uh, an executive leadership uh, consultant, and she does leadership training for executives. And in a really unique way, seamlessly, uh, pulls together the the recovery principles that uh, we all talk about and that we all um, uh, encourage one another to share. But she also puts this into a, a leadership model, talking about um, just the way that leaders uh, benefit from even these principles that we connect with. And I want to talk to her about those principles. I want to talk to her about uh, the book, um, because Karen is very vulnerable in the book, and she shares her own stories. Um, I, I think she's adding a lot of personal, uh, information to it and, and that makes it even more compelling, but, um, Karen, welcome to the positive sobriety podcast. Pleasure to be here, David. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Now, what we usually do, um, you know, first thing with our guests is say, you know, it's wonderful that you're writing and speaking and using your leadership to bring recovery principles into all these things. Cause I think they, I think anybody can benefit. And I think we all belong in recovery, honestly, but, uh, <laughs> but the, the reality is, um, you have done this in a really unique way, but you didn't just wake up one day and decide maybe recovery would be a cool thing to embrace. Right. 
I mean, tell me about your own recovery background. Yeah, it has been the journey, David. Um, I'm going to start by saying that my recovery started as a child, but I didn't know that I was in the process of recovery. Mm -hmm. So in other words, my family tree sits in a vat of alcohol Mm -hmm. and no one was really doing recovery. There was some consciousness from my mother of talking about how addiction and her own alcoholic father and then her first husband all created this tremendous sense of trauma on her. And yet no one in my family was getting well from it. So I carried from a very early age the isms, even though at that time I didn't know what I was carrying. Mm. Right. So I was groomed because of the family trauma and because of the intergenerational addiction mm-hmm. to be this caretaker, to put on my superhero cape, to figure out how to save and rescue people. And as you and I know, no one wants to be saved or rescued. Right, right. right. No one wants to be saved or rescued. So I'm wearing this superhero cape and running around trying to save people. And that went into my adult life. Mm-hmm. And no one wanted to be saved. Mm-hmm. So I refer to myself actually as a recovering higher power. Mm. I have all the isms mm-hmm. because the family disease of addiction is brutal. Yeah, It trains us to think in a certain way, to behave in a certain way, to relate in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And while connection is the antidote, it's very hard to come to a healthy sense of connection when we're dragging behind us mm-hmm. the weight that even a forklift can't carry. Mm-hmm. So the entire family disease of addiction nipped at my heels for decades until I finally threw up my hands and surrendered and said, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and Karen, when did, is there, is there a kind of, was there kind of a stake in the ground moment where you realized that maybe, um, <laughs> life wasn't going to work for you if you continue to let everybody else set the emotional thermostat and you uh, just try to keep pace or was there a was there an epiphany or what how how did it how did it happen for you to come to that there was clarity? definitely an epiphany mm-hmm. but you know it's it's not like as you said earlier in your opening comments David it's not like I woke up one morning and said gee recovery would be a really good idea right it's it's more as if I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I didn't really understand how somebody else's problem with alcohol and drugs was my problem. Mm-hmm. If they just got better, I would be fine. And, you know, damn it, why didn't they just do what I was wanting them to do? Yeah. So what I had to figure out, and this was with an ex-husband of mine, was my efforts to save him was not working. Mm -hmm. I was putting myself in danger. I was putting my infant son in danger. It was not working. And it was this moment of tremendous humility where I had tried everything for years. And the dismal sense that us family members get when we realize 
I am wired to save and rescue. Mm -hmm. And it's killing me. Mm -hmm. It's killing me. Yeah. And that's the darkness that I woke up with one day that said, I have got to let go Mm. because this is taking me under. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how would you tell family members to give themselves permission? What, what would you tell family members that would help them have permission to put themselves ahead of this need to rescue or this false idea that they can save the people that don't yet want saving? That's the question, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and, and in all my um, 12-step recovery work and in all the work I do with families and all the groups I attend, that's what people struggle with. There are no magic words, David. I've been at this a really long time. Mm-hmm. People have to get to the end of their sense of control. I mean, step one, we admitted we were powerless over addiction and our lives have become unmanageable. I was talking to devoted, loving parents last night who've been at this for probably a good eight years, and they are still trying to rescue and trying to be there for their beloved child. Mm -hmm. It's not working. Mm -hmm. And they've heard all the words. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure there are any words. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's more or less, and you know this too, David, it's more or less we come to some kind of a spiritual intervention, some type of surrendering. Like you talk about in your book, the question is not, do you want to walk? It's, do you want to be well? Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And us, us, us loved ones struggle with that because we're thinking, how can I choose wellness when my beloved person is not choosing wellness? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I forgot to mention, Karen, about you and your um, background is you have a Master's of Divinity from Princeton, right? And so I do. You're, I do. You're, you're coming at this from a lot of angles, you know, um, the clinician, the, the, the very spiritual uh, center, um, and as a person that's experienced uh, these things firsthandedly and, and had to uh, get to connect with yourself, which is something you talk about in the book, first of all, is connecting with self. And um, and that's one of the things I, I uh, appreciated was because we talk a lot about, you know, the opposite of addiction isn't um, sobriety, it's connection, right? But we don't often talk a lot about connecting with ourselves first. And you talked about uh, connecting with your with yourself and then something greater than yourself and then connecting with others, I think if I remember correctly, and you correct me if I'm wrong, I don't want to misquote your, uh, your premise, but, um, how did your spiritual understandings play into helping you turn this corner? Mm, Great question. And and thank you. You, you, you nailed it. You nailed what I talk about in the book. Um, connection is the antidote, right? Mm -hmm. To addiction, Mm -hmm. whatever our addiction may be. And Lord have mercy that there is a lot of addictions in this culture Mm. right now. Um, my spiritual journey, interestingly enough, 
you know, so I have all the things. I have a master's in clinical social work. I have a master's in divinity. I have this beautiful career that I love, work that really brings me tremendous joy. None of those things Mm -hmm. saved me. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. They're all part of my hustling for approval. Mm -hmm. They're all about, certainly there's an outside solution to my inside pain. Mm -hmm. Certainly, if I get another degree, if I launch this great career, if I, if I do all the things, then it will be okay. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Certainly, I tap into my clinical training. I love my spiritual life. I am grateful that I had the opportunity to go to Princeton Theological Seminary. And it all came together for me. Mm-hmm. But none of those things were the fix. Mm-hmm. And I do talk about we have to connect to ourselves in a meaningful, honest way before we can connect to others in an emotionally healthy way. Mm -hmm. Because most people focus on connection as being outside of themselves, that it has to do with a relationship. And it's really this synergistic process. Connection starts deep within us. We're all looking for the holy grail. And yet it's not until we come home to ourselves that we find it's within us. Mm. The God of our understanding is waiting there for us. Mm -hmm. The ability to have healthy, honest relationships flows from our inner connection. Mm -hmm. And it's a process, Mm -hmm. right, David? I mean, it's a process. This is a one day at a time thing that we commit ourselves to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, Karen, in this, you know, this, this book, I, I know that it's written to leaders and, you know, very often with your work, business leaders and corporate leaders and the people that you, uh, interface with. But, you know, I, I felt like I could be reading this book with a, a a title, the connected partner or the connected parent or the connected, you know, uh, friend or a person, because it felt like all of the things you were talking about, even taken outside of organizational, you know, uh, structure. I mean, these are just principles in relationship and in relating. Uh, it feels like to me, you know, just just in healthy healthy relationship to yourself and and how to have be healthy with relating to other people. But how do how do leaders? Because I, I have this stereotype in my head of, of corporate leaders, <laughs> and they t- they tend to be you know super confident people, you know maybe often wrong but never in doubt kind of types. But um, how did they res- respond when when working with you is really going to take them on a a path that I'm not sure that everybody would have anticipated. Oh, that's an interesting question. The clients that work with me, and and I have the fortune of being able to work with people all over the globe, the people who come and work with me, whether they be individual executives, corporate teams, or entire organizations, don't come to me randomly, David. Mm. People typically find their way to me because the more normal kind of leadership paradigms are not doing it for them, their teams, and their organizations. Mm -hmm. So I say that we don't need another leadership paradigm. We need our true selves and our stories, that we're not leaders having a leadership crisis, but we're leaders having a human being crisis. Mm -hmm. So the leaders that I work with 
are typically ready to dig deep into themselves. They do realize that the solution is not another process or checklist. Mm -hmm. They realize that they cannot MBA their way into leadership, Mm -hmm. that there is a willingness on their part to dig deep and to find out how their flaws, how their unresolved wounds, how their insecurities and fears are getting in the way of them being even more successful. And and these are people, men and women, who are at the top of their game. Mm -hmm. No one can argue with the fact that these are really successful people from all outside standards. And yet they realize There's some transformation I want to put into motion Mm -hmm. that I'm not going to be able to do organizationally until I look at the normalized defects Mm -hmm. inside of me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the kinds of leaders that I work with, leaders who are really willing to change the world, one conversation, one team at a time. And we are doing some amazing work at a time when our culture and the outside world is suffering from disconnection more than ever, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, friends, David and I are pleased to welcome to the podcast a new sponsor, Soberlink. And we're positive that you're going to love this tool for managing your alcohol recovery. In early sobriety, we often focus on what we're losing instead of what we're gaining. Soberlink, you're gaining increased accountability, a deterrent against drinking, and a tool to help you stay connected with people who care. Uh, Here's what it is. It's a really high-tech breathalyzer device with facial recognition. It allows you to share your sobriety in real time with loved ones. In case there's ever a slip, your treatment professional or anyone else you've chosen to be in your recovery circle will know immediately. Uh, More important than the technology is the brand. It is part of Soberlink's mission to break the stigma that surrounds addiction, which is why they partner with Positive Sobriety Podcast and many others in the recovery community. It's also why they specifically focus on using alcohol monitoring as a recovery tool not for criminal or recreational purposes. There there isn't anything like it on the market. Well, together we've developed a guide called Tips for Keeping a Positive Outlook on Sobriety. And you can download it at www.soberlink.com slash PSP. That PSP is for Positive Sobriety Podcast. On that page, you'll also find a form to request $50 off your purchase when you're ready to try Soberlink. You know, I I mean, in my own work, I've watched people um, just just in this isolation, in this quarantine time and all of that, um, you know, the way that... um, it's almost like, you know, the cruel joke that, you know, these folks are embarking on recovery. They've experienced kind of the end of themselves and they're here to get help. And this other, this, this, this virus hits, people have to isolate and they do it with their triggers most of the time. You know, I mean, they're isolated with the relationships that maybe aren't altogether the best people for them to be, you know, spending 24 seven with. 
you know, <laughs> I've, I'm watching folks just struggle with, uh, you know, not only isolation, but, but even being confined to people that aren't good for them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've heard lots of stories like you have over the last few years where people have literally been behind four walls with the same person who is abusing them. Right. That's why we see the uptick in addiction. That's why we see the uptick in domestic violence. Yeah. And I've had a lot of people tell me tremendously painful stories over the last few years, things that they really had to open their eyes to that maybe they were able to be more in denial about when they were running out the door six or five days a week working 12 or 14 hours a day. They could leave all that behind. They could go to the office Mm -hmm. and they could pretend Mm -hmm. that everything was okay. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you talked about before about the book could be the connected parent or the connected relationship. I do define leadership in the book, and I'm sure you remember this, as a leader is anybody who has people entrusted to their care. Right. So stay-at-home parents are leaders. Right. People in the church are leaders. People who are leading a football team are leaders. Yeah. People entrusted to our care makes us a leader. hmm yeah. And for me, that's really important because just like we're all recovering from something, we all have the ability, ability to lead ourselves and those entrusted to our care to a healthier way of living. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things you said early in the book, um, Karen, was you, you used a term called chasing slowly, I believe. <laughs> Um, can you yeah. unpack that for us and explain that? Cause I felt like that was kind of the beginning of the process. Uh, mm. it, it, it yeah, felt I like. love that term. I re, um, I use it as a weightlifting for the soul. Mm-hmm. So I say that chasing slow is a weightlifting for the, for our souls, that it's very important for us to slow down, Mm -hmm. to have time to self-reflect. This culture typically rewards us for being busy Mm -hmm. and being busy actually fuels our addictions. Mm -hmm. When we slow down, we have to sit with ourselves and that's a really uncomfortable process. Mm-hmm. We have to sit with what we have done to ourselves and to others. We have to sit with our addictive tendencies, drugs, alcohol, shopping, work, all the process addictions. Mm-hmm. And so chasing slow is where it all starts. Mm-hmm. We have to be able to pull back on our tempo and find time to reflect how we do the morning is how we do the day. So Mm -hmm. I always ask people to find a chasing slow process that they can embed into their very first morning routine. Mm. Yeah. And can you tell us a few things of what might that look like or uh, for some people? Yeah, of course. I'll talk about my routine. Okay. I'll share that okay. because I think that there's a lot in there that people can choose from all depending on what might might work for them. So first first and foremost, I 
I have to get my coffee before the the, the routine actually starts. <laughs> so I, I grab my cup of coffee. That is the one addiction that I am not giving up. Um, <laughs> there you go. I'm with you on that. Yeah. We all have our thing, right? Yeah. Um, I grab my coffee and I sit in what I call my prayer chair, which is this beautiful white chair in my keeping room. And that's where it begins. And for me, it begins with a centering prayer routine, which, of course, the Jesuits started years ago. Mm -hmm. And it's just a time to get myself very quiet and allow myself to be in the presence of God Mm -hmm. and let God work on me. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those times where I remember, Karen, you are not in control. You cannot work on yourself. Let God work on you. So there's just this centering prayer, quiet time. And then I read my quitlet, right? I mean, I read all the 12 the 12 step recovery meditations mm-hmm. and daily reminders that I need to read to center me. Mm-hmm. Now, if people are not in recovery, they might skip that part. That might not be something that works for them. There, then there's meditation and mindfulness practices. Mm-hmm. And I like to say that meditation is not something else we have to work on. It's something that begins to work on us. Mm. There's a journaling process that I do. There's a Bible reading process that I do. So there's a number of things that are on my chasing slow list every morning. Mm -hmm. Other people might want to get out in nature. Other people might want to add some exercise to that, some yoga stretching, mm-hmm. anything that we can do that brings us back home to who we are, where we can find the God of our understanding and listen to that small voice inside of us. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think one of the, one of the probably most challenging things when I first got sober was realizing that I had to become comfortable with quiet and stillness um, because my whole MO, my identity, my strokes, my everything, you know, came from how fast I could pedal and what I could accomplish and, and doing it in front of a lot of people. Um, And, and man, you know, getting, getting comfortable or giving yourself permission to sit in that silence um, is at first, it's a kind of a brutal uh, thing. At least it was for me. I I did not just sit there with great ease and contentment at first. Uh, can you can you give us some tips on how to become a little bit more comfortable in that space for folks that are just embarking oh. on that? I'm not sure that there are. Mm-hmm three or five things to do, David, to Mm -hmm. get immediately comfortable. Mm -hmm. In in many ways, it's embracing the discomfort that allows us to be comfortable. It's so paradoxical, which is why we all fight Mm -hmm. it so very much. Mm -hmm. You know, I have this beautiful porch that sits on the back of our house. And it really is a kick up your feet, grab a glass of tea, sanctuary. Mm-hmm. It symbolizes for me the power of chasing slow. Mm-hmm. Because on that porch where I gather, where my tribe comes in, where my son has hung out with his buddies, it is a place that beckons into quietness. Mm-hmm. It's a comfortable place. Mm-hmm. 
And that's what the chasing slow and the reflective practices begin to be. Mm -hmm. They become our own internal porch, the place we return to because we feel safe there. So the, the chasing slow, the quietness starts to call us. And sometimes I say to people, just start out with two minutes. Mm-hmm. It's not like you have to have a 30-minute practice. Mm-hmm. Start small. Jot down some feelings that come up. Mm-hmm. Allow yourself to do it on a daily basis, day in and day out, one day at a time. Mm-hmm. So I wish there were three three easy steps and you too could be comfortable with yourself, right. but it's more or less trying it on. It's like when we start going to meetings, mm-hmm. like what the hell am I doing here? Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's come to this. <laughs> it's come to this. Why am I walking through this door? Yeah. It's surely I am not one of these people. Oh yeah. Yeah. Love that. Right. Yeah. And then it's, we go back and we go back again. Yeah. And before you know it, we're going every day, mm-hmm. maybe more than once a day. Yeah. And these become this becomes our rhythm. And the same thing is true for a meditation or a mindfulness or a chasing slow practice. Yeah. Just start and keep coming back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's important that you did that you did say getting comfortable with the uncomfortable, you know, is is part of it. You know, I mean that's just what it is. I mean, it's like going to the gym for the first day after how long and saying, okay, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to go in and I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to be, you know, the guy that's um, just wandering in like, you know, your first day at church or something, (laughs) you know? Yeah, for sure. And and sometimes I sit in my prayer chair and and believe me, I pick up my phone. I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. Surely I'm going to start scrolling through Instagram. That's a lot more distracting and entertaining. Yeah. And then I catch myself, I'm like, what are you doing? It's so easy Mm. to listen to the seductive siren call, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Odysseus, that's why he said to his buddies, tie me to the mast. Mm. The sirens are calling me. And I know it's too easy for me to listen to their beautiful calls. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we all have that call. Yeah. Whether it be the call of alcohol or drugs or saving people, or Instagram, or all those things. Mm -hmm. And then we bring ourselves back to center. Mm -hmm. It's coming back. Yeah. Well, Karen, when when a a company, because you work with companies that are household names, so you don't, you're not just, you know, helping mom and pop, you know, uh, corner market, you know, enhance their productivity or something. You're going into businesses that are are household names, um, and they're bringing you in, um, into their business culture and what are they hoping you do? I mean, like, is there a, is there a, a thing where they, they maybe are calling you for one thing and you're actually saying, mm, I hear that, but what I'm seeing, what I'm experiencing here is a, that you may need this. I mean, is that how this kind of works? I'm real curious about that. Oh, that's a great question, David. You know, companies are nothing more than an amalgamation of individuals. So their requests are the same kind of requests that you and I might get in a 12-step recovery meeting. Mm -hmm. Hey, can you help so-and-so? Hey, can you help my son? So I oftentimes get calls that pretty much go like, we want a cultural transformation, or can you fix this executive 
So I like to step back and take them through a process about, I am really good at what I do. Mm -hmm. However, Moses himself can't change anybody. Yeah. So if Moses came down from the mountain and you were able to retain Moses, Mm -hmm. he still wouldn't be able to change anybody who's not willing to embark on this journey. Yeah. So I like to tell people that what I do is simply life changing and It's very important that who's ever involved in the process realizes that maybe, just maybe, there's something I can do differently. It's like when we first go into recovery. You know, most of us think we don't have a problem. Mm -hmm. It's the other person. Mm -hmm. It's my spouse. Mm -hmm. It's if all these other people would just get their game together, Mm -hmm. I would be fine. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happens in organizations. Mm -hmm. There's a tremendous amount of systemic addictions in organizations. Mm. They're addicted to success. They're addicted to busyness. They're addicted to the marketplace believing certain things about them. And and now we have tremendous stories like Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos or what happened at WeWork. Mm -hmm. Those are powerful illustrations of what happens when we have leaders involved in the very seductive process of self-deception and how people want to follow someone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I like to unpack all of that with organizations. Where are the healthy behaviors? What are the unhealthy behaviors? What pulls us into destructive relationships? So they might come to me with, can you fix so-and-so or can you fix our culture? And then we start to unpack the very contributing processes that got them to that point. Yeah. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does a lot. And, um, you know, you mentioned the whole Theranos thing. I I admit I have gotten complete. I went hook, line, and sinker on the on the um, streaming. On the Hulu. Hulu. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I had seen, of course, the uh, the, I guess it was the 2020 a documentary that they had pulled together before, but then I got really hooked into the Hulu thing. But, uh, you know, I, w- I was watching that with friends and, and, you know, of course the overwhelming thing is how in the hell does somebody have a machine that doesn't even work um, with the ability to get the kind of financial support that she did, um, the kind of people on her board that she did, um, and, and still dodge the minefield of the fact that this thing is not even really functional, <laughs> you know, and the way they were handling, you know, all these false, you know, tests and things like that. Uh, but the conclusion that we came to, to your point is that people want to believe in what they're doing. They want to believe the leadership that they have and, and they'll go to great lengths to deceive themselves. All of us will. Oh, David, I couldn't have said that any better. That's absolutely the truth, at least from where I sit. I was talking about the very same thing with another friend. The more we move away from God, the more we search for, as a result, something to believe in. Mm-hmm. So for ex- as example, you know, the folks on the Theranos board were not babies. Mm-hmm. These were sophisticated, successful men and women that was not their first rodeo. They were easily duped. And even on the witness stand, Elizabeth Holmes said, I never lied to the board. Mm. 
So her, the power of her self-deception, and there's more and more research now that shows that as people get into a pattern of lying, it changes the structure of their brain. Oh, wow. So the neurological architecture of the brain changes with a history of lying. Wow. So think about addiction, right? Yeah. I mean, most people would not be able to continue their addiction if there wasn't also a process of lying and self-deception and denial. Yeah. But the brain is actually contributing to that self-deception. Mm-hmm. And I just really think that people are looking for something to believe in, someone to believe in. Yeah. And we're willing to leapfrog over the things that don't make sense. Yeah. 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 That <laughs> we do it with ourselves. We do it with others. We do it with what we want, uh, what we, what we wish could be, you know, um, I, I wrote a, not, not to be self-promoting here. I just, but my first book was called, um, our authentic selves reflections on what we believe and what we wish we believed, because I think that a lot of us spend so much of our time in what we wish we believed, trying to believe what we wish we believed, um, instead of examining what is it I really do feel and think and, and how is it really playing out in my life? Is this something I'm really embracing or is this just a great idea that I kind of like to tip my hat to, you know, occasionally? Well, I think the more honest we become with ourselves, that means then that we are truly the creators of our own life. Mm -hmm. If I accept what's going on in my life, then I have to sit with that and decide, does this work or does this not work? Yeah. I have to then make some decisions. Yeah. Well, Karen, before we go, um, I mentioned to you when we first started, uh, when we when we talked this morning before we hit record here, um, you wrap up your book in a very poignant, unexpected way, um, in a very personal, vulnerable way. Um, can you share um, kind of the uh, the epilogue uh, of your book here with our listeners about where your you know you write this very helpful book. You, you have this, you have this, um, great career where you're out there helping people embrace all these realities and truths and connection and, and walking in a vulnerable way in their, in their leadership and so on. And then you get this opportunity, um, to have to, um, experience and, and acknowledge something that's very difficult in your own life here at the at the home stretch of writing a book, which, you know, I mean, as a person that's written books, that's, I mean, writing the book's exhausting, you know, you're right. I mean, the emotional wear and tear that you, that you put into that is not just, you know, us sitting down and clacking out a chapter a day or something, you know, this is brutal. We learn a lot about ourselves in this process, but tell us um, if you can, the, the, the nature of the turn at the end of the book in your own life and where you are now with things and, and what, what that looks like for you today. I'm going to start with what happened in Colorado right before things started to unravel. So I'm sitting in Colorado and I'm having my morning coffee, Mm -hmm. of course. (laughs) And down the mountain comes this herd of mama elks and their babies. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of them. 
And good thing I didn't know what I know now, which is sometimes elks stampede human beings. But I'm sitting there completely oblivious and just in the moment marveling at this beautiful natural scene. And a mama elk came up to me about three feet away and we made eye contact. And and David, as I'm talking to you now, I can still see her face, Mm -hmm. her eyes Mm -hmm. looking at Mm me. So being who I am, I wanted to see if there was any spiritual meaning to elks because they were surrounding me. And I thought, does this mean anything? Mm -hmm. Elks are a symbol of connection. They travel in herds and they do that for strength as they prepare for a journey that's going to take a lot of perseverance and endurance. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I believe that's what the mama elk was encouraging me to do because three months later, my husband was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. It was early onset. It was rapidly progressing. And the next two and a half years of our lives was about that journey. Mm -hmm. And my life in some ways started as a caretaker because my mother was diagnosed with a terminal disease when I was 10. Mm -hmm. So I step into that caretaking role very easily. Mm -hmm. And everything that they say about Alzheimer's is absolutely true, plus some. Mm -hmm. It is a great thief. It is the longest goodbye. And you yourself know, because you talk about this, you have been in a caretaking role too, David. And as a caretaker, so much of our identity gets caught up in that. Who am I apart from this? And as if that was not enough of of a storm, one of my beloved family members had their addiction rise to the surface at the same time. Mm. And so I was upping my 12-step recovery game. Mm -hmm. I was caretaking my husband who was dying very rapidly of Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to get my other beloved family member the help that they needed. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot going on. At the very end of the story, I talk about the last five days before my husband died. And it was such a spiritual process for me. Mm Because many years ago, he said to me, and he was not the kind of person who said this kind of thing, I want to be with you until the good Lord calls me home. You know, he was a CPA, so he didn't talk like that. (laughs) Uh And those were not kind of words that would naturally come from him. But that's what he said. I want to be with you until the good Lord calls me home. Mm. And he got his wish. Mm. Walking him home was a tremendously difficult powerful and loving process for me, for our son. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it was the ultimate connection. It was the ultimate connection to have the ability to sit by his bed and walk him home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how have you felt impacted by that? Now, and that may seem like a very simple um, question, but from a person that's experienced, you know, when we watch people leave this world, I think it just changes us. You know, I don't, I don't think you can encounter that, that moment where they're here and then they're not. 
and not be different. Um, I, I I don't know how that I don't know how that would work. But how did had, had that changed you in any particular way after having this whole experience with that? One of the things that was so clear to me while those five days was going on is that the veil between this world and the next world is very thin. Yeah, yeah. It's just, and it's very difficult, even for me, a writer and an author, to put into words. The veil is very thin. And for a long time, I felt like I had a foot in each world. Yeah. And one of my therapists said to me, you know, that that there was some energy coming off of me for for months that was just heightened spirituality because there was this sense that the other world visited us while my husband was passing. Mm -hmm. There's just no other way to say that. Mm -hmm. You just feel so impacted by the vulnerability of life, the frailty of life, and for me, the assuredness that there is ongoing life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's the ultimate connection and it, it does, it changes us. Yeah. Well, it, it does. And, um, I'm, I'm sorry that that had to be part of your story. Um, but I love that you didn't walk away from that empty handed and you didn't waste a good crisis. <laughs> You know, yeah, and I appreciate you sharing that with all of us because I know there are people out there that are hearing this and experiencing similar things, and 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 you and I know what it feels like to be, you know, three inches from that in the moment, and then the distance we feel later, and um, it's just a it's a profound it's a profound thing. So thank you for sharing that. I wanted to yeah, shift yeah. gears just for a second before we let you get away. Um, and two things I wanted I want to know first of all what if anything, did writing this book teach you about you? You said it earlier, David, writing a book, at least the way I wrote the book, was a deep dive into connecting with myself. Mm-hmm. I remember hitting the send button to my editor and publisher right after the final round of edits. So the edit process, as you know, is just brutal. Mm -hmm. And every time I went through a round of edits, I actually learned more and more about myself. The book became much more of a memoir. It became much more revealing of my own travels and journey. And so I really learned that I am grateful that I'm able to tap into my own resilience Mm -hmm and tell the power of my story in a discerning way. Cause I don't believe that we want to put out all the gory details of our story. <laughs> um, Very true. <laughs> but I do believe we want to tell our story in a way that tells people I've been where you've been mm-hmm. and there is life on the other side mm-hmm. and there's hope and there is, there's resilience. So walk this way yeah. and we'll do this together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, our guest today is Karen Hardwick, and the book is The Connected Leader, Seven Strategies to Empower Your True Self and Inspire Others. And Karen, before we get away, the second thing I want you to be able to do is let people know how to get a hold of you. Um, you know, are you, uh, I know that you're located in Atlanta, but you work globally. So how can people access your your help and your work and 
uh, get to know a little bit more about your your uh, lane that you're in. Yeah, everything is listed under Karen J. Hardwick. So I, the website is karenjhardwick.com. Instagram, LinkedIn, I'm easy to find. And on the website, there's just tons of resources and information um, and all the contact mm-hmm. stuff that anybody could possibly want. Mm-hmm. Well, great. That's that's great. And I would encourage our listeners to grab this book. It is not um, something that you have to be a head of industry to benefit from. This is just good old fashioned, get your shit together uh, kind of stuff that Karen's given us here. So uh, Karen, thank you so much for being a part of the, of the podcast today. And uh, you know, my apologies that Nate couldn't be here to join us because he would have probably asked you 15 other questions that are even better, but um, it's been great, great visiting with you today. Oh, thank you. And good luck to Nate in his new home. And David, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. And listeners, we will be right back on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Our guest, uh, Karen Hardwick, Nate, uh, was one of those people that um, we talked for a couple of minutes before we recorded the episode, and she and I had emailed a little bit prior to that as well. And she's one of these people that you know uh, when you finally start talking with her and and having a conversation that you feel like you've known her for about 15 years. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> very engaging, very easy to get to know. But, but the biggest reason is because she is very, um, she's very free with her own story. She's very mm-hmm. um, in touch with her own story and, and able to share it and articulate it. And her book um, with respect to uh, the steps that uh she implements recovery, of course, in her mm-hmm. uh, in her leadership work, yeah, a yeah. corporate consultant, and um, you know it's very creative and uh, and a great a great way to challenge leaders. And it, it just goes back to the fact that you and I say a lot that uh, that good leadership is is built around vulnerability, yeah, willingness yeah. to be in touch with with your own story. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, this is this is particularly you know that's that's hit me particularly hard. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I like to forget those decades of my life when I was an active addict and mm-hmm. still uh, forcing my way into leadership roles. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, because I was truly a terrible leader. Mm. And I had no idea how bad I was. Uh. So this last weekend was a bit of a, uh, 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 we had some family coming into town from the Southwest. They were coming in for the uh, graduation, high school graduation of a grandchild. Mm. And I was, and they were going to come down, they were going to make the long trek down to Mount Pleasant okay. so that we could get together and have dinner with them. And I dreaded it because uh, this guy, former brother-in-law, uh, they divorced years ago, but he was a brother-in-law back in the day. Mm-hmm. He worked for me okay. when I was an active addict. Okay, uh-huh. I, I was a pastor back then, and he came in in a in a uh, you know in a supporting role. Oh yeah, <sighs> I was such an asshole, David. 
<laughs> I had no idea. This guy eventually just picked up and left. He took his family and he moved to Phoenix. Oh, and I don't blame him for a second. Yeah. Um, now, as it turned out, uh, there were some family dynamics and she came and he didn't. And so yeah, uh, I was actually looking forward to making some amends to this guy and having some conversation because we're both a long way down the road. Uh-huh. That happened, you know, 30, more than 30 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. But, but once again, to be, and here's the one thing I'm great. I'm still, I don't call myself a good leader. Mm-hmm. I try to surround myself by good leaders. I try to support good leaders. Um, and I'm, but, but I'm, I'm far better than I used to be. Mm-hmm. And I have learned that it, you know, a big part of leadership is remembering that it isn't about me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's right. Yeah. That's the healthy, the healthy part of leadership. My, my, um, sort of, uh, theory about how addicts end up in leadership so many times, Uh um, or people, you know, unwanted behaviors and things like that in, uh, they end up in leadership and I think, yeah, they're competent and they're used to being able to assert themselves in ways and all that. But I really believe it's a way we have of managing our addiction. Because, you know, if we're in leadership, I control the narrative. I control who gets close, who doesn't. I control, you know, how I get to uh, manage uh, the time that I either, you know, Mm -hmm. get to use, prepare to use or, you know, all that stuff. And um, if I'm in leadership, I'm controlling all of that and managing all of that. Of course, we all know that, you know, those of us that have made our way into recovery love uh, to believe we're in control somewhere along the line. Um, Mm -hmm. but I think that that's part of it. I think that, you know, a lot of times we find ourselves in those leadership roles because that's where we can manage, um, who gets in and who doesn't. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I was never a good team member. Uh, that's, I mean, that's just too dangerous to be a team member, to be on call. And, Mm -hmm. and I could, you know, as an active addict, I was not good at taking criticism. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, uh, very reactive, very defensive, mm-hmm. uh, with a very fragile ego that I was desperately trying to support. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and learning to surrender the ego, <laughs> uh, uh, learning to become a little more right-sized, to actually join the human race uh, and and still lead. What I have found that, um, you know, uh, collaborative leadership, servant leadership is far more productive than uh, the model that I operated with. And still, uh, you know, I think I have a bias in that direction, mm-hmm. which is why I don't call myself a, a, a really good leader yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I... Yeah. I've learned recovery makes better leaders. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I'm a visionary. I think you're a visionary. You have, I am, you have a idea, you have a vision, you have a, um, a way that you know that something can work and all of that. But you and I, you and I need people around us to help us, um, push that vision forward, you know? Right. I mean, like that's why you and I have Rex. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. 
exactly. It's like because we're missionaries. That's right. That's right. That's, that's right. Be, that and then be Rex the, makes it happen. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Rex is the the worker bee. Oh, more than that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, he puts his, he puts his creative stamp on this thing. Yeah, and really does. turns it into really turns it into something. Yeah. All right. Well. Hey, before we run, would you remind our our listeners about uh, BetterHelp? I will. Uh, BetterHelp.com. You've probably seen some of their cool new commercials about how to ask for help. And uh, uh, BetterHelp.com is your online uh, access to licensed uh, clinical counseling. And this is an opportunity for you to be able to access uh, licensed therapists from the privacy of your own home, your car, wherever you are free to talk. And um, this is a a group of people who can help us get unstuck, help us break these patterns that we want to break. All these things that we talk about on the Positive Sobriety podcast that we encourage people to do, BetterHelp can be a a vehicle for you to access that kind of uh, opportunity. So uh, betterhelp.com slash positive sobriety will get you a discount on your initial signup. And it also lets us know that you are accessing uh, resources that we're making available here on the program. So betterhelp.com slash positive sobriety and uh, take the opportunity to get unstuck. Fantastic. Well, it's been great reconnecting with you again, David. Absolutely. Uh, And good to know we have plenty more wonderful conversations coming on down the road. We do. So until our next time, I'm Nate. And I'm David. And we are your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer Rex Schnelli, music by Rex Schnelli, theme music by Matt Ulrich, uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, wardrobe <laughs> by Kathy Gifford. 